Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. In today's episode of the Afternoon Light podcast, we will hear from the University of Melbourne's Professor Joy Demusi, who spoke at the Robert Menzies Institute's first event for 2022 on compulsion, censorship and the price of freedom, how World War I's conscription debate was fought out at the University of Melbourne. Good afternoon and welcome to the first event of the Robert Menzies Institute for 2022 on compulsion, censorship and the price of freedom, how World War I's conscription debate was fought out at the University of Melbourne. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boomwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which the Institute stands. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. It's great to see so many friends of the Institute here today, but also some new faces. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Robert Menzies Institute, Uh, We are a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum located here in the beautiful Old Quad and our home is in the East Wing and will be open to the public as of next month when our exhibition is finished and I I really do warmly welcome you to, to come and see that. It will be absolutely fabulous. We are a very new institution. We were established in April last year in the midst of our second year during the COVID pandemic, so no mean feat. And we were established by the Menzies Research Centre and the University of Melbourne. The reason why we're based here at the University of Melbourne, and not least because the university is Australia's preeminent tertiary institution, is because of its connection to Robert Menzies. Uh, Robert Menzies started as an undergraduate student here in 1913, where he studied law in this very building in the old quad. Uh, He then went on to have a very active student life, which I'm sure we'll hear more about from our guest speaker today. Um, He was president of the Student Representative Council. He was editor of Melbourne University's magazine. He then went on to have a successful career at the bar, state politics and, of course, federal politics, becoming Australia's longest serving prime minister of over 18 years. Today, with the... Uh, rather frightening drums of war once again beating in Europe. It does seem appropriate that our first event for 2022 is on one of the biggest political issues of the early 20th century in Australia, the debate over conscription. The issue of conscription really challenged so many deeply held views about freedom of the individual in contrast to a duty to empire and the nation. To speak to us today about these issues, I am very, very pleased to introduce Professor Joy Demusi as our guest speaker. Joy is a Professor of History at the University of Melbourne in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies. She is the Redmond Barry Distinguished Professor 
and Director of the Institute for Humanities and Social Sciences at the Australian Catholic University. She's also, and as if she wasn't already as busy as she is, um, the immediate past president of the Australian Academy of the Humanities and of the Australian Historical Association. Thank you very much, Joy. Before I begin, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the unceded lands on which we're meeting here today, the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians present. I'm not going to be called, um, brought into the current situation with war, but as Georgina rightly points out, it's a moment of great reflection today that we are surrounded by similar discussions around conflict and commitment and Australia's involvement in overseas wars. I'm going today to follow the themes that Zachary here has identified for me. He um, came up with the title, Compulsion, Censorship and the Price of Freedom. So let me begin with compulsion then. This is a rather busy slide and I'm sorry for the busyness, but there's a lot to cram into a topic like this in one hour. Um, we would know, many of you would know, that conscription was the defining feature of wartime Australia. And with the depleting numbers of Australian volunteers, Prime Minister Billy Hughes proposed a plebiscite to introduce conscription, which of course divided the country. I've just got there the statistics, I'm sure they're very well known to you, but to, re to remind us all that on both occasions the plebiscite was defeated um, very narrowly. Uh, more narrowly in 1917 than in 1916. Contemporary observers and subsequent scholars identify this event and this debate as one of the most bitter and intense conflicts ever in Australia. Those four believed opponents were disloyal, forsaking country and empire. Those against said supporters were threatening Australia's most precious institutions and values. Each of them used similar language being murderous traitors, doing the work of the Prussian army, and use similar images, which is sort of quite interesting in that slide there where you've got the pro and the anti-conscription using both images of the family and its impact on the family, mothers and fathers of war and the implications of sending or not sending men to war. At its very height, it was described as a civil war, which um, actually is not too um, inaccurate in terms of how it was played out. Many of you will know, but I think it's, it's worth pointing out here, that Australia was incredibly uh, unusual in not introducing military service at this time during this period. It was only a few countries there, I've got there South Africa and India, that Australia did not participate in the war through military compulsory service. And Australia was unusual to introducing, sorry, uh, a plebiscite to determine conscription. The other factor here is that there was military service, but it was service not for um, serving abroad. This is something we might want to come back to because it does mark out Australia's involvement in World War I in very distinct ways. So Robert Menzies, as um, Georgina said, was here at the University of Melbourne, and he was connected with all three conscription campaigns or conscription issues in Australia's history, which makes him, I think, quite unique. So in 1617, of course, he was a staunch supporter of conscription. Uh, he introduced compulsory conscription in 1939, uh, and, you know, with great debate, but then by uh, 1942, Curtin um, accepted it and um, supported it. 
And then, of course, more controversially, as we know, in 1964, introducing the National Service Act, that 20-year-old men serve in the army, leading, of course, in 1965 to conscripts serving in the Vietnam War. I think this is an interesting series of connections in Robert Menzies' biography. Um, many people have alerted us to it, but I think there's much to be said about his role in all of these. And uh, I'll come back to um, this particular war that we're talking about today in a moment. We know too, as Georgina said, so um, what did Robert Menzies do in World War I? He aligned very closely with the liberal conservatives um, of the day who were the bulk of the yes vote on conscription. The whole of Menzies' undergraduate years was dominated by the war, of course. So he began in 13, he ended in 1918, graduated as LLB there in 1916 and a Master of Laws in 1918. But he was energetic well beyond his studies. He was quite a figure on campus and you can see the list of activities there. President of the Student Representative Council, the journal, the magazine, Student Christian Union, a member of the Historical Society and, of course, the Law Student Society, a very, very active participant, as you would expect, of a very engaging, intelligent mind um, at the early ages of 20 to 22. He was not only involved in public debate, oratory, discourse. Menzies was also immersed in uh, legal theory. And I think it's notable to, to point out today, while we're talking about his career here or his, his education here, um, that his essay uh, in 1917 won the Bowen Prize, the essay prize, and was subsequently published as a pamphlet, The Rule of Law During War. It's an interesting pamphlet. You can get it online here. Um, it, no one's going to be able to read that writing. It's just I put it up there. It, it attracted quite a bit of attention, actually, and the Sydney Morning Herald reviewed it there. Um, so he's a theorist. He's developing his interest in legal theory as well as being an activist on so many issues and areas of cultural life, I suppose, of the university. But as we might know, it's what Robert Menzies did not do during the war, in which he's most known, I guess, in some circles. So we would know that two of his brothers, Frank and Les, they both served in World War I. Um, Robert was encouraged and then basically instructed, I suppose, by his family to pursue his brilliant academic career. And the feeling was um, that two sons was enough to give to war. That was a patriotic duty that was enough, the two. And so, um, in fact, he did not serve. I'll come back to this issue, but as you, many of you would know, this haunted him actually for much of his political career. He joined the company of revolutionary socialist pacifist men who refused to serve. And I'm sure during this time, it would have been a very uncomfortable period for Robert Menzies, given that almost all his contemporaries served. Um, and yet he was here undertaking training through the University Rifles Group, um, but not serving abroad, drawing into question his whole commitment to war, his masculinity and other ways in which the service to war was defined at that time. And I've got this slide up here just to give you a bit of context about that narrative about how many men should go from one family. There is the famous case of Frederick and Maggie Smith who committed six sons to war. It was very unusual, mostly um, a couple went and there were statistics there about how many couples or three sons served. It was really accepted for more than two men to serve from one family. So. 
while there's not a lot of documentation about this whole issue, it is an interesting one to reflect on Menzies' own biography. It is true that in the course of the post-war period, that division between those who served and what was termed the shirkers was very pronounced during the 20s and 30s. And that narrative became more and more amplified as Anzac Day, of course, became part of our national story and our public recognition of men who served in war. So I think it's an interesting aspect of Menzies' um, time here at the university, but also generally how this shadow is cast over his biography. I'm going to turn now to the theme of censorship, the second theme that we're talking about today. Uh, as you know, censorship and freedom of speech were major issues during the conscription campaigns. What could be said, what couldn't be sent, what government interventions took place. And there you have a page of a letter from the poet Wilfred Owen. Censorship was very active, of course, uh, throughout the world. The conscription conflict, in broad terms, I think it's fair to say, tested the forms of uh, public and political debate. And these debates were very violent in the uh, lead up to conscription, uh, the vote, the debates were very conflictual and it raised questions of freedom of speech. It raised questions about uh, to what extent people could express their views in these circumstances. So returned soldiers would disrupt talks, they'd throw speakers off the podium, they'd throw chairs, they'd um, violently intervene, as did anti-conscription um, um, opponents as well. It raises the question about to what extent can uh, you have a democratic voice in these circumstances uh, when both sides are claiming that any opinion is, if it's not of their own, is disloyal and the, and the power of disloyalty during war was very pronounced. So these sorts of themes played out at this university and here is a, a lovely photo of the rather serene and um, very peaceful Melbourne University lake which I'll come back to, um, in 1914, just as the war began. So these debates, as, as I'll demonstrate, played themselves out here as well. And we'll see there was uh, a question of civil liberties and the violation of civil liberties during the, the conscription campaigns. Um, it also saw, really for the first time, uh, a political mobilisation of students and staff around an issue of great magnitude, probably not duplicated until the Vietnam War in the 1960s. Again, you're not going to be able to read this, but I did want to just capture the, the in, incredible energy around anti-conscription, around pro-conscription debates, um, around the, the sort of coverage that this topic's getting here on campus. And I guess these themes came together perhaps most famously around the case of Guido Baracci, who was a socialist law student. And he raised the issue of freedom of speech in the Melbourne University magazine in 1917 when he argued that the war was a European war, it was not Australia's war. Of course, in 1917, this was an incredibly subversive and radical thing to say. The University Council asked that the board expel uh, Baracci uh, and um, he was certainly hauled up for misconduct for having published material that would derail the support for the war. Other sort, um, he'd be barred for life from the university. Uh, in the end, the board censored him and probably would have imposed a, a, a much harsher penalty had not Baracci rather cleverly sent his article to the censor, which, who, who actually passed it. 
But the issue went public uh, when Baracci published an inflammatory article in the press which showed the board little reverence and he was forced to apologise on the public record for, for the offensive terms he used in that article against the board, university board, and making a public statement, to his uh, a public statement against loyalty to the British Empire. So he was forced to apologise. But the next day when he came up on a podium to speak, uh, 200 students pro-conscription students interrupted a paper he was giving at the Historical Society and threw him in the lake and forced him to stand in water there. The University Board, who I'll come back to in a, in a bit later on, were great supporters of the Empire and wanted to silence him and his supporters. So the extent of freedom of expression on this issue was rather compromised. So that's a sort of overview of the student engagement with conscription in which, as I suggested there, Menzies is playing a key role through all those organisations he was involved in and a number of public events, as well as this issue about not serving. But what about the staff? Um, and this takes us into a sort of new realm, a new domain about the yes vote. So in November 1917, uh, a meeting of the University of Melbourne Council took place at the uh, Melbourne Town Hall to consider what action the university might legitimately take to ensure that its students enlisted. Now, this is quite a big issue, right? How much morally can you force a student to serve? A unanimous motion was passed that students, quote, of military age and fitness should seriously consider whether they uh, ought not as soon as possible offer their services to the front. No considerations of commercial or professional advantage should be allowed to stand in the way of this plain duty, end of quote. So the um, amended part of this resolution, that which was debated but ultimately not included, referred to examples like Oxford and Cambridge, the Scottish universities and Dublin University, where uh, larger numbers of men, young men, were enlisting and the University of Melbourne, shamelessly, they believed, did not compare very favourably with those other seats of learning. So the council was divided over the lengths the university should and could go to insisting that a student enlist. Alexander Leeper, uh, the author of the defeated amendment, that is, that he wanted to make that statement comparing Melbourne University to other universities, warden of, he was warden of Trinity College, he was a founder of the collegial system at the university, and an outspoken pro-conscriptionist, was absolutely emphatic about the role of the university in the conscription debate and in the war in general. The university, he believed, should, and I quote, aspire to be both the brain and conscience of the nation, the brain and conscience of the nation, and the public was entitled to look for it for guidance in public matters when the empire was in such peril. It was a disgrace, he believed, that there had been a record attendance at the races, for example. It was also a fact, he reminded his colleagues, that many of the university classrooms were crowded with men who were eligible for the front, which of course would have included Menzies himself. Leeper believed Ormond College had sent the right message in not accepting, not accepting any student who could not give good reason for not enlisting. And Leeper actually wished the university to adopt a similar edict. So while Leeper had supporters for his, his stance, rather firm stance, the views of others was far more tempered, not least of which because, of course, mass enlistment would severely hinder the way the university 
could function at all in the event of an exodus of the young, uh, of young men to the front. The Dean of Medicine, and it's interesting when you look at medicine as, as an area, you know, to conscript all your medical students would have left the profession in disarray. And this was Alan's point. He warned the council that if at the beginning of the year, it's 1917, they'd encouraged their first year medical students to enlist, we would have a deplorable condition for another five years, of course. He warned the university, um, you know, not to insist that every student enlist. And he would gladly see approximately uh, 50, uh, 50 first year and 30 second year students enlist. But he was clearly nervous about what an escalation of numbers enlisting might mean for the university and for medical courses in particular. So there's quite a dilemma there. Some of, his, some of his students, however, were not so fast. In the last year of the war, a number of medical students attempted to, ex, to expel um, from the Medical Students Society all eligible men who had not enlisted. They're quite militant. Perhaps too, Lipa had a point uh, when comparing Melbourne University um, numbers uh, around the world, Melbourne University numbers to those universities around the world. Melbourne had 1,100 to 1,300 students in every year of war whereas the numbers, of uni uh, numbers at Oxford had declined from 3,000 to a mere 350. Allen's colleague, the prominent law professor Will uh, William Harrison Moore, was as active as Leeper and Allen in staunchly supporting the Yes case. But unlike them, he took the case beyond the university. Moore was part of a group of university academics who supported conscription and who spoke at suburban and country areas wrote articles in country uh, metropolitan press and helped prepare leaflets for distribution. But Moore, for all his insistence on the need to introduce conscription, could not bring himself to use the classroom as a platform for recruitment. Of course, Moore taught Menzies, he's his law lecturer. Moore believed he would consider it, quote, a breach of his duty to use this place in the lecture room, his place in the lecture room, to talk to students about the duty of enlisting. This was unfair, he believed, because it would be like shifting the burden from the shoulders of those which it belonged, in other words, politicians and others, onto those to which it didn't belong. Proconscription, but not prepared to take the same stand as Leeper. In their outspoken support for conscription, Moore, Leeper and Allen were joined by their female colleague, the high-profile classics lecturer, Jessie Webb. Women academics, of course, were rare at this time and they immediately attracted attention as they dramatically stood out in that sea of men wearing double-breasted jackets. We've all seen those photos under their academic gowns, as was the fashion of the day. Webb was accustomed to public attention, but not only for her rare place among men. Her trips to Greece to study the ancient world were often reported in the local press and she regularly gave public lectures on ancient Greece. The war moved Webb into other domains and together with Moore was a key figure on campus for the Yes case. So what I want to do here now is just talk a little bit about the debates uh, and why these debates, the Yes and the Yes case, the Yes argument in these debates, I think, is, a, is under re researched area and important for us to continue investigating. I think it's significant to look at these debates, um, first of all, because the role of universities Academics and students and the Great War has been the subject of many discussions and publications in the British context, and more specifically, as many of you will know, of the extraordinary story of the numbers of young men from Cambridge and Oxford who um, gave to the war effort. 
but relatively little has been written um, on arguments put forward by scholars here. This was an issue that deeply moved them, so, so much so that for some of them, it was the only political question on which they publicly campaigned throughout their entire careers. Even for those who believe the university should be a politically neutral place, the war posed such deeply moral questions that they were shaken out of their privileged university cloisters onto the campaign trail. So the point I want to highlight today is that while all staff supported conscription here at the university, there was a spectrum of views put forward by the Yes case, from Leaper's extreme position to that of uh, Webb and Moore. Interestingly, and I think second of, secondly, um, these were scholars, of course, coming out of the 19th century liberal tradition, which upheld the values of the idea of liberty, primacy of the rights of the individual, upholding individual freedoms above all else. But conscription fundamentally contradicted this ideal, for it, it essentially insisted that it was a legitimate form of coercion where the rights of the individual were temporarily subordinated to the state or to the community. How did they reconcile these apparent contradictions? And finally, the war inescapably forced several of these scholars to think of Australia's place in the wider world in ways not possible before the bloody battles of the Great War. The long-term political impact of this war and these debates around conscription shaped this generation of scholars in profound and deeply fundamental ways, producing a new form of liberalism, which more than ever before was shaped by an internationalism defined by the killing fields of the war. It, there was a great urgency and immediacy to their international outlook, evidenced by their even more intense political engagement after the war, which I'll refer to briefly. So the university prided itself as the upholder of the liberal tradition of the concept of the purpose and role of a university, uh, famously enunciated by John Newman in his idea of the university to be secular, promote intellectual culture, to reason, to reach out towards truth and to grasp it. University historian Richard Selick observes that those at the university um, have historically, over a very long period of time obviously, contributed aggressively to the social, political, cultural and educational debates that have convulsed Australia. And such debates, he argues, invigorate its great history. Conscription was one such debate. It not only became the site of intense discussion, as I've seen, but the values of, the, of freedom of the individual and liberty were extraordinarily tested at the time of the war and during uh, these, these campaigns. So as I mentioned more, I'll just go back to more. He exemplified this position of liberty. He was appointed to the university in 1892 and an ardent supporter of moral and social value of legal education more included history and political philosophy in his legal courses. A conservative yet energetic advocate of law reform, an interesting balance there. His knowledge was broad and wide ranging and was the author of the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Australia in 1902 and Acts of State in English Law in 1906. His wife Edith, a leading activist in so many women's organisations at the time, she too was pro-conscription, but again, like Moore, less militant in her outlook and practice. And Webb, Moore's closest ally, had graduated from the university here uh, with a Bachelor of Arts in 1902, first class honours in history and political economy, as well as logic and philosophy. Uh, and in 04, she completed her master's degree. In 1913, she was appointed a full-time lecturer 
and on the eve of the war in 1914, she was lecturing in Asian and British history. So what were the arguments that Moore and Webb advanced in support of the conscription around liberty and freedom? So let's have a look at them from the perspective of that liberal tradition which emphasised the notion of individual freedom and rights. So I'm just going to briefly go through these. First of all, they argued that it was democracy that was on trial in this war. Democracy was on trial in this war and Australia was failing her allies and her responsibilities by, by not adopting conscription. As the, quote, most advanced of democratic nations, Australia uh, could not be neutral. So they saw it as a, as a, as a question about the, free, uh, the future of democracy and Australia's um, involvement in, in sustaining it. Second of all, Australia was in a unique position to be asked to decide on conscription, which is true. So it was, they argued, a testimony to the freedom of Australians that they alone among all peoples should be called on as individual citizens to vote on the question which everywhere else had been decided by government. So this is an extraordinary opportunity, they believed. And from that argued that it was the responsibility of all citizens to show themselves worthy of that freedom, to show themselves worthy of that freedom that was bestowed on them and vote on behalf of the nation, not, not themselves, but look at it as a future of the nation. So having the individual freedom, not abusing it in their terms, was to identify with the nation and the importance of individuals to, to the nation. So in a funny way, it's, a, it's sort of a paradox. There's individual freedoms, but that we have to be committed as well to the nation. A no vote was a vote for Germany, and there was a sense, a very strong sense, I guess like today, that there's a real possibility that Germany could invade and take over Australia as we ponder what Putin might do. Um, these things are played out with uncertainty at that time. There was a real belief that Germany could win the war and defeat the British Empire, and so um, by implication, Australia be involved in that. And of course, the no vote would threaten the much cherished white Australia policy, the defining white Australia policy supported by both sides of politics. Uh, fearing cheap labour would, cheap coloured quote-unquote labour would flood into Australia. But I guess the most profound and compelling argument that they had to work hard to mount was to counter this piece of propaganda. And many of you will know it, the blood vote appealing to women uh, and for women not to vote for conscription or, as it says there, to send another woman's son to war. Why is your face so white, mother? Why do you choke for breath? It's a very, very powerful um, verse um, uh, written to try and convince women that it's their responsibility not to kill the sons of other mothers. Now, some have argued that this, this one piece of propaganda swayed the women's vote and arguably could, it was the women's vote that, that you know, steered the course to uh, a defeat. There is no statistical evidence for that. We do not have the statistics and, argue, and historians endlessly argue about it. But Moore and um, Webb had their job cut out for them because this is a very powerful piece of propaganda. So what did they say? So in a direct response, they wrote a counter pamphlet to this one and basically said, no, we do not bring our sons to be our pride and joy alone. We bring up our sons um, to um, be the defenders of principles 
and to serve the nation. So for them, uh, it was about thinking beyond your immediate circumstance, again, coming back to that individual argument, and considering the fact that mothers brought up their sons to serve the nation. And even women who did not have sons, they said, had a responsibility to vote yes. And to these women, they said, it was your responsibility to serve your country with your judgment, to help the fighting men and to safeguard freedom for, for children. So again, it's about freedom. So conscription then was necessary in, in, their, in their argument uh, in order to fight for the continued rights of liberal values of freedom, individual rights and responsibilities. And they did not see that conscription imposed by the state was a contradiction to these values. In fact, they felt that they upheld them. The so-called group, the, the group of university academics um, trained the group, they were called the group, the group of university trained men and women academics led by Moore and Webb were tireless in their efforts to promote these types of arguments. And other professors such as Richard Berry, the professor of anatomy, Harold Woodruff, the veterinary pathologist and bacteriologist who had served in the AIF in Egypt and France, spoke in meetings at factories and at suburban and country centres. Some 50 articles were published in the columns of the country press from members of the group, and they also wrote um, advertisements um, and, and a number of pamphlets. 10,000 copies were distributed of the pamphlet I referred to earlier. So they're a very active, active um, group. Um, you wonder when they had time to teach or publish or do other things that we do, but I won't, uh, I won't take that further. Um, but it's, it, this is capturing their energies, obviously. So how did they go? Well, in Victoria, um, there was a, um, Victorians voted yes in 1916, but no in 1917. Now, this is a, um, just to give you the Melbourne context, really interesting context, this is a, a ticket to the MCG uh, to attend a rally where uh, Billy Hughes spoke, where 100,000 people, those of you from Melbourne will immediately calculate that as a grand final sized crowd, um, attending to the, at that rally. It was an extraordinary rally. But the yes case did not uh, prevail in 1917. The academics could not believe that they had lost that and that they lost both places sites. I mean, it was beyond comprehension. They were so supremely confident that loyalty to empire would prevail. Back on campus though, at the other end of the spectrum, um, Alexander Leeper's notion, coming back to Leeper's strategy, of liberty and freedom was not a matter to be debated or discussed as it was with Moore and Webb, but one that required direct action. So on the University Council, Leeper campaigned for the dismissal of two German members of staff and prevented their reappointment after 1915. So by this time, Australian Germans had become the subject of greater abuse and hostility as we know. Many were sacked from their jobs and there were calls for their internment and deportation. The university considered the removal of the names of aliens, so-called, from the graduates' role. Leeper and Moore disagreed on whether the university should, um, with, with um, Leeper, uh, on whether they should bar the children of our aliens from receiving scholarships. The council sided with Moore who believed that it should not bar them or, bar, or remove the names. So this is what you're getting into now the sort of removal of German-sounding names and, and those of German descent. When it came to staff, however, the matter was slightly different. 
So Edward Scarf, a distinguished pianist, uh, not naturalised, had been on a yearly contract since 1913 and was up for re renewal in 1914. Moore was consulted and he could not uh, see any objection and so he was reappointed. But Leeper, however, made it his personal quest to pursue him and as well as Walter von Duchend, spreading rumours about, about them and the German army and their disloyalty. So Lieber continued his crusade at the council meeting, arguing that in keeping them employed, the university gave the impression it was not promoting the interests of empire. Lieber moved to have them dismissed, and others like the Professor David Masson, Professor of Chemistry, resisted, so he argued against it, claiming that Lieber's desire to reduce two well-respected colleagues and citizens who'd been in Australia a long time to poverty was he described as pure hysteria and playing to the gallery. The council, however, argued that unnaturalised citizens could not be reappointed. While some were opposed to the action, there was a strong perception outside the university that it had not been sufficiently careful in purging its staff. So when Scharf's appointment was raised again, the council agreed he would not be reappointed. Students protested about the decision there was, and, and were critical of the council, which they believed had worked itself into such a state of suspicion and mistrust. Once outside the university, Scharf maintained he was you know, obviously very vulnerable. In 1918, he was interned as a prisoner of war in Langwarren and then to a camp in New South Wales where he stayed until 1919 when he accepted deportation. So there were clear, these were clearly testing times for the university and for the university's tolerance and pronouncement of liberal freedoms on which the very notion of the university was founded and it came at great cost. So to the last theme, Price of Freedom. In his history of, the, of Melbourne University, Ernest Scott noted how the war had, quote, cut short some careers which seemed certain to lead to distinction. It was a great waste of lives, he believed, not fully realised. This it was, uh, to be sure, despite Leeper's complaints by the war's end, over 1,700 University of Melbourne graduates, students and staff members had enlisted. 251 of them had died. So a focus on the university during the war also draws our attention to the spectrum of views, I think, presented by the Yes case by academic liberals who ventured beyond the cloisters of the university to argue a rather non-liberal stance to state coercion to uphold democratic freedoms. But while it was a logic put forward by arguably the most learned minds in Victoria, it seemingly did not hold sway. The enduring impact of the war remained with Melbourne academics Webb and Moore in the years that immediately followed. Like their contemporaries around the world, they desperately and actively sought solutions that would never again result in the carnage of the Great War. They took their political engagements to a new level. From the streets here in Melbourne to the world stage of Geneva, they cast aside the shadow of war through a shared optimism for what could be achieved at the League of Nations. This optimism filled their generation with hope for a peaceful future and once again they joined in a collective endeavour. But defeat in the conscription campaign in 1917 could never prepare them for another violent end to peace, once again in 1939 and all too soon after peace was declared at the end of 1918. Young Menzies of a different generation to his teachers had taken by then, of course, a very different path. By the 1920s, he was building a law practice specialising in constitutional law taking silk in 1929 and moving in political circles. In 1934, he won the federal seat of Kuyong, becoming Attorney General and Minister for Industry in the Lyons government. 
In April 39, he became Prime Minister and in September, through the National Securities Act, put Australia on a war footing, announcing the recruitment of a volunteer military force, which at once became the second um, Australian Imperial Force, for service in Australia or abroad, and the calling up of militia drafts for local defence. Menzies was often criticised for not signing up to fight abroad himself, and yet he was prepared to send men to war. The right honourable gentleman had a brilliant military career cut short by war, Labor MP Eddie Ward would often say. And yet the most notorious attack came from within his own ranks, from uh, the country party leader and, brief, and briefly served as Prime Minister, Earl Page, uh, who himself of course served as a military surgeon during World War I, accused Menzies of cowardice and said he was unfit to be Prime Minister. Menzies himself um, admitted conscription was a quote, a stream of mud through which I have waded at every campaign in which I have participated, end of quote. So I'll finish now with this photo of young Menzies looking away from the camera, his brother Les towering over him, a constant reminder of the war he escaped, but its enduring shadow which cast over him and his generation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joy. That was absolutely fascinating. I must say, reflecting on current debates on university campuses and in Australia and questions about foreign influence here and of course geopolitical challenges. There's, uh, there's so much from history that we can learn to inform the decisions we make into the future and the judgments that we make in our daily lives. Um, I'm sure there are lots of questions in the audience but um, if you'll indulge me I'll ask the first one. Um, it's really interesting when reflecting on that early 20th century, uh, the differences between the states. So Victoria, in the tradition um, of, of Alfred Deakin, had a different conception of, of liberalism from their friends in New South Wales, um, much more under the influence of George Reid. The result in the first referendum and you spoke about this, showed um, Victorians actually voted yes for conscription. So perhaps let, they prioritised that sense of duty to empire over their own individual liberty, um, whereas New South Wales did not. Can you explain that? Well, yes, that's a very good question, Georgina. <laughs> um, and it's a very interesting one to look into. I mean, the problem we have is that we don't, we, we can only speculate how votes, how groups voted. So, so one of the big sort of groups that people talk about are the Irish and the influence here in Victoria of yes. Catholicism, for example, and yes. Mannix. Yes. Okay, so Mannix's big Melbourne profile, big Victorian profile, his anti-conscription, um, and you know he too attracts rallies of hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Um, yeah. So whether Mannix swayed, um, particularly in that second vote, uh, around um, you know, conscription, there's a strike in New South Wales in 1917, and you know, that mobilised a lot of people um, to, um, kind of that dovetailed into an anti-war, anti-conscription sort of mood as well. I think it's really hard because historians will speculate, but really, we don't really know. I mean, we isolate the groups and where those groups are concentra concentrated. But if we look at women, for example, which is what I sort of made that off-the-cuff comment, and, you know, met, you know, Hugh said, it's the women. The mm. women voted against me, damn them. Um, and I think he was right. Mm. I actually think women and that campaign, the side of majority of women, 
And women did vote in large numbers. They were there. Um, so I think it's very hard to distinguish state by state. We can talk about the Liberal Deaconite tradition. We can talk about um, you know, that lacking in New South Wales or, or WA or the Conservatives of, of WA. But you know, they're really speculative. Um, and, and that's why this topic continues to attract interest by historians, because you know, we're all kind of looking to see how, else, how we can define why it played out. And you know, why, why voting against it wasn't the loyalty to the empire so strong. I mean, it was amongst the group here on campus. But I mean, what they ignored was actually their arguments were really hard. Yeah. That contradiction they never resolved individual freedom and yet coercive state. Yeah. I don't think they resolved that and it was hard for them to do it, to cut through, as we say now, with, um, you know, in, in social media terms. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's just too easy to say, well, I don't want to send men to war and I don't want my sons to go. And even the most patriotic of women agonised about, they, you know, they did not want to send men to war. Who wants to do that? Like today, who wants to do that? Um, so I think it's a very, very complex question, which leaves so many questions unanswered. Mm. And and um, and of course is a hopefully a spark for further research into this into this period of history. Um, it's it's worth reflecting on too, Joy, isn't it? That um, the amount of men, predominantly, of course, men enlisting after um, the disaster at Gallipoli started to decline, which is why this conscription plebiscite was held, because there was a need to send, you know, Australia should do more than it was doing. Um, it was seen to be slightly failing in its duty to the empire, um, which is quite interesting. Australia was rare in that it gave women the vote at that time. Was there a sense, because the women's vote against conscription was so strong, was there a sense that this was used by opponents of universal suffrage as a sort of an attack point. This is why you don't give women the vote. Sure, absolutely. I mean, there were fierce opponents. To, well, and it, yes, there were fierce opponents to women's suffrage, and they were arguing this is the reason why you don't give women the vote. Exactly. I should add as a footnote, Leaper, our rather, you know, distasteful, I think, Leaper, was actually a very strong um, supporter of women getting the vote. Mm. And um, he's an interesting character, you know. I mean, it's never quite... It's complicated, people's political orientations. Um, but absolutely, and there was real attack against women in politics. Uh, Vita Goldstein, of course, ran for the Senate three times during the war. Um, but absolutely, that this is the reason why you don't... They don't know what they're doing. They don't necessarily vote with their husbands or with their sons. They vote on their own and have a mind on their own, and that's outrageous. We should stop that. Um, very, very much so, very much so. Um, look what women can do, you know, um, stop a whole, uh, you know, war kind of commitment, I suppose. Um, so you did get those arguments coming through. Um, and Webb herself had no children, so I think she was very vulnerable in that regard. She's sort of saying to mothers, you know, send men to war. Um, and again, like Menzies, I think these tensions come out, right? He's pro-conscription, but he's not going. Jessie Webb has no children. She's telling mothers to say, you know, they, there were just too many contradictions that made it a little hard to cut through, I think, or believe them, you know, or a form of, or, or they were an easy target. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. No.
Stuart, that, thanks, Stuart. That's a that's a great question, and, and and Stuart's asked a question about the role of religion in the war and and during his time and during the debates with, um, of course, Mannix taking such a central role um, on the Catholic side. And Stuart rightly pointed out the people I'm talking about are largely Methodists and Presbyterians, um, and you know their their view on war. Um, so there was well, uh, it's <laughs> it's the great divide in Australian society at the time anyway. Catholics versus Protestants, um, and these these conscription debates just came to the surface and divided those communities quite clearly along those lines. Um, people would know in 1916 there was a, a Easter uprising uh, against the British uh, in Ireland. And so um, the Irish Catholics here in Melbourne, particularly, uh, you know, that transforms into even more hostility against the British Empire and so on. So it's a very heightened environment, very tense. Religion was fundamental to so many of these debates. Um, Stuart, as you know, um, you know, the, the anti-establishment, if I can put that way, anti-British vote of the Catholic, of Catholics was hugely central, I think, in, in swaying um, that, the vote that way. Um, so I think here on campus, there's, I get a sense less of that. Um, I, I'm not sure what the proportion of Catholic students on campus, but definitely there's a very Protestant kind of profile. Um, so that, that comes into play again, I think. But it's a great question and a very important one. Thank you. Before I quote the great Dr. Thomas Sowell, the African American, uh, just one little comment. Menzies was asking the ESPO for what Labour leader Billy Hughes. I never, I might have missed it, but I never heard that in your presentation. Billy Hughes was a Labour leader. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Well, 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 he was for half the war. <laughs> um, I'll say about something about that in a minute. Yes, go ahead. Anyway, in consideration that the Germans were already up north of us and their possessions became Australians' possessions after the First World War, the great African American, Dr. Thomas Sow, a Korean War veteran, said, If you're not prepared to Defeating civilization with force, we must be prepared to accept barbarism. Now, excuse my pun, but it's all academic now, isn't it? Okay, thank you. Um, well, that's that's right. I mean, that perception was very prevalent at that time. But just to pick up your comment about Billy Hughes, um, so of course Billy Hughes is the Labor Prime Minister, but uh, the Labour Party splits and he forms the National Party. Um, and I was talking before to Zachary about this. It destroys the Labour Party, right? The Labour Party is out of office except for one year until 1942 because they expel everyone who was pro-conscription. So there's a great history there of the impact this whole debate had on the Labour Party, as I said, it, just, it was kept it out of office for all that time, except for that Scullin government in, uh, during the Depression, which is a very short period. So, you know, Hughes himself, is, there's another story to tell there, but uh, yeah, that's right, he was, he was 16, he was leading the Labour Party and then National Party. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this gentleman. Yes. Thank you, uh, Charles Richardson. Um, thank you very much for such a really interesting
talk. Um, I'm wondering if I mentioned Menzi had enlisted and had, had seen, had some experience of the war in the trenches in France, for example. Uh, assuming he survived, um, what, what difference do you think that might have made to his subsequent outlook? I mean, based on what you know of um, his views and of the experience of uh, you know, the generation who did fight. Well, that's a fantastic question. That is a really great question because no one's really ventured to speculate because, you know, how do you know? I mean, would he have introduced conscription in 1939 and 1964? Probably. But, uh, and, you know, his contemporaries who did serve were supportive of it, as, did, as was Curtin anyway during the Second War by that time. Vietnam was a lot more controversial, of course, um, and, you know, this came up during the Vietnam War as well, that, you know, you're introducing this and what do you know? In reality, look, probably, I'd have to say probably not because they're political decisions and they're decisions made around a, a, a particular time and place, but we don't know, and it's the one of the great sort of questions about to what extent the experience of that war might have shaped uh, his decisions. I mean, certainly Earl Page served, others served of his contemporaries and were as promote, as supportive of conscription as anyone else in the war. But it's a great question and one I think that's worth further consideration and research. Oh, oh Xavier. Yeah. Hey, Xavier. Yeah. Oh, you, you go. Uh, thanks so much for the talk. Um, I remember the 2020 lockdown, the first one, and I had a, um, a disagreement with a close family member about the need to protect the community versus the yep. rights of the individual. Um, actually, I actually read laugh from the point where I've liked my things on the one that this and it got me thinking about the intersection of the public and the private um, and how it seems like Menzies might have had some tension with his family about this decision being made. I'm wondering if you comment about the description in general and, and how that did it uh, intersect with the private lives within the family, within relationships, as, as much as it did between the classes and the ethnicities and things like yep. that? Great question, Xavier. Um, Xavier is my former PhD student who knows more about this topic than anyone in the universe. Um, <laughs> lovely to see you here. Uh, great question, yeah. Look, uh, I mean, I've spoken about the university here today, but. There's so much to say about the way it divided communities, it divided families, um, it tore families apart, uh, those who were pro against the war, pro against conscription. The case of Menzies, I mean, Troy Branson, I think, I mean, there's some discussion now, more and more, about his personal experience. Um, it's been an area of Menzies' biography that hasn't been discussed. I mean, I don't think there's a... Uh, you know, a mysterious body of letters somewhere tucked away we don't know about, which would be fantastic to find, where he talks about that with his family. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so I guess we can only speculate how he felt in that regard, the responsibility to family, you know, the brilliant, the brilliant career um, to pursue um, versus com feeling compelled, uh, feeling that, you know, he couldn't do what every other young man was doing at the time and hearing at this university that, you know, William Moore, his lecturer, is not preaching but making the stand for conscription, very obvious. Um, other lecturers the same. It's an interesting question. I mean, it's a really fascinating one. I mean, I, yeah, again, I don't, I don't know. We don't, we don't have the writings, we don't have the evidence to sort of um, look into that, Xavier, but, but certainly there would have been tensions. I mean, I actually thought that photo 
was very symbolic, um, actually. You know, it's quite poignant, I think, when he's looking there and, and, the, and, the, and the brothers, you know. And, and we know men who didn't serve did find, you know, they did have a really difficult time in terms of just the narrative of Australian society after the war and the interwar years. Uh, and for whatever reason, they didn't serve, you know, being labelled. So I think there's a lot more to be said about the way it impacted on family life. Thanks, Xavier. Peter, our final Peter. question, yeah. unless anyone's burning, but time's upon us. Thanks, Joe, for a wonderful talk. And I was just uh, thinking, as, as I was listening to you, also about Ross McMullen's book, Farewell Dear People, uh, which goes to that, the whole question of the lost generation. Yes. You know, that it wasn't only just the sheer numbers of people who were lost, but they were, as, as you mentioned during your talk, um, some of those who were potentially believers uh, in various parts of society in the 20s and 30s. I wonder, are you aware of Menzies ever reflecting on that, on some of his contemporaries who did go and didn't return? And did he ever reflect on you know, what might have been or uh, where were the, uh, you know, the potential rivals for him to, uh, in yeah. a certain sense, but you know, in, in all forms, in all parts of society, uh, were there those that he particularly missed or did you have a comment to that effect? you're aware? Thanks, Peter. Look, I'm not aware, but it would take somebody to go through those archives um, and potentially there might be a goldmine there of, of reflection. I mean, I'm not aware of any such writings. I mean, I guess for there to be writings like that, public ones, would to be even further make him vulnerable as someone who didn't go. Um, I mean, it sounds to me like it's an issue that's become silenced you know, uh, we don't have material, but I think there's a reason why there isn't the material, because I think it's very, it was very delicate for him. Um, I mean, it would be very interesting to go through the list of men who died here um, in combat and see how many from the law faculty, and there were many from the law school who we, who we would have known, um, and see if there's any connections one could draw that way. But I'm not aware, I mean, others might be here of any sort of, you know, official pronouncement of, you know, the great, even in his later life, you know, the Great War took these men and, you know, robbed them of talent and now generation of leaders. Not, I'm not, I'm not familiar with a speech of that sort. Zachary might know. Uh, I just... Oh, Nina's got the mic. Okay. I would just sort of add from the opposite perspective that Menzies was quite unique, particularly on his side of politics, to have not served and he was, um, there was a great book written about the um, Canberra Air Disaster. So in 1941, there was a plane crash where three government ministers died. Mm. And they were all very much reflective of this generation of leaders that had been sharpened and shaped um, by the First World War. So Menzies is, it's not just in his political opponents or people like Earl Page, who um, this has a lingering effect, his whole dynamic with this cabinet, and I think a lot of how he ends up alienating and not being able to stand on his prime minister during the Second World War is part of this outsider's perspective, and it's only once he returns to power with that whole generation of the what they call the 49ers when they doubled the size of Parliament, so so many people came in that that dynamic had very much changed, and Menzies was able to be the leader that we sort of see in that now. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks, Zach. And for those who don't know him, that's Dr. Zachary Gorman, who's the academic coordinator at the Robert Menzies Institute and a font of much knowledge. <laughs> um, unless there's another burning question, we are out of time. Um, so I'd just like to take um, this moment to say an enormous thank you to Professor Joy DeMussi for headlining our first event for 2022. I'm sure you'll all agree it was absolutely fascinating, shining a light on a, on a period of history that I think we, we all would do well to reflect on, uh, not just because it informs where we've come from, but also where we're going in the next few years as we face some very significant geopolitical challenges and challenges here in Australia. Um, I would like to share um, a conversation I had with Robert's um, daughter, Heather Henderson, who lives in Canberra, and uh, she's a, a fabulously feisty 94-year-old. And uh, we talked about um, Bob's uh, not going to war and um, how that affected him personally and his family. And it was interesting. It clearly was something that pained him. And she said um, it was, as you, as you explained, uh, a meeting of his parents and, and their sons, um, uh, Frank and Les, and uh, James Menzies, uh, Robert Menzies' father, announced to the family that, um, Bob, you're the smartest one here. You're the one who's likely to do best, and we can afford as a family to ten send two sons off to war, but you know, in the event that Frank and Les don't return, we need someone to look after James and Kate, the parents, and uh, and so Bob, you're staying, and you know, we can reflect on the the sense of duty a son might have to one's parents in the you know, 1916, 19, 1914, but uh, uh, certainly Bob Menzies followed the wishes of his parents, James and Kate. But as you said, it haunted him throughout his political career. And uh, Heather said to me, the reason why her father went into politics was, was partly out of a sense of, of huge duty that he hadn't been able to undertake that duty to defend the empire by serving during the First World War. But he could undertake his duty to his nation through public service, which is, of course, what he, what he went on to do through all those years in the state and federal parliament, foregoing you know, a, a hugely successful career at the bar. So um, it isn't an easy question to answer. You, you rightly identify there are inconsistencies in approaches, but that's what makes it so interesting. And Joy, you have really illuminated it for us Thank all. You. So thank you very much. And I have a oh, small token oh, of our appreciation. You Robert Menzies to. branded too. Thank you. Look at that. <laughs> Whoa. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> thank you. That's lovely. Yeah, great. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.